Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, paying the price for consultants. Why won't they give us an answer? How much should McKinsey get in total? From McKinsey to the ArriveCan app, why is the federal government spending so much on outside help? And why are conservatives raising the alarm? Also, is Canada on a slippery slope to two-tiered health, or is it time to change the conversation? We will speak with former health minister Jane Philpott. And... We will be able to reduce the stigma. Decriminalizing the possession of coke, meth, and opioids. A pilot project begins today in British Columbia. Is it a blueprint to fight addiction? This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. Until recently, McKinsey & Company was a name many Canadians were unfamiliar with. But in recent weeks, we've heard more and more about McKinsey, in particular for the tens of millions of dollars the company has been paid by the federal government for consulting contracts. And the federal Conservatives, well, they have been very instrumental in pointing this out. They say they're going to be there for the people most in need like the $1,000-an-hour consultants over at McKinsey, a company that received over $100 million for work that public servants say was of little or no value. The total amount this government is spending on high-priced consultants, $15 billion. That is $1,000 for every single family in Canada. No wonder Canadians are eating increasingly at food banks after eight years of this government. No wonder seniors can't keep the heat on. Why won't they give us an answer? How much should McKenzie get in total? But outsourcing is not new to Ottawa. So what makes this case different? Is it different? To talk about this, we're now joined by two journalists who've been covering the story. Bill Curry is the Deputy Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Globe and Mail. And Najud Amali is economics reporter for the Canadian Press. Hello to the both of you. Uh, listen, Bill, I'll get you to start us out here because here we have uh, McKinsey and Company getting tens of millions of dollars in terms of government contracts. Put that into context for us. Given the fact that outsourcing, again, is not new for this city, how huge is this number? What, what makes it so concerning? Sure. So I think for context, I'll talk about outsourcing broadly and McKinsey specifically to give people an idea. Um, if you look at outsourcing under the previous government to the Conservatives, towards the end it was about an $8 billion a year business, federal outsourcing. It's now grown to close to $15 billion. So it's been a very big increase under the Liberals. And this is a government that campaigned in 2015 on a platform to scale back spending on outsourcing and, and consultants. So they had promised to scale this back. It's actually grown, you know, 75%. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So with McKinsey specifically, um, this is a company that did get some outsourcing work under the Conservatives, but it was up and down, sometimes a little over um, a million, sometimes less than a million, sometimes zero towards the end. And then the Liberals came into power and it started to inch up year after year after year, one, seven, 13, and then like last year was just over 30 million. And now we're getting new figures just in the last few days, putting it all together, 2015, since 2015, we're up to about 115, 116 million dollars over that period. So it's a lot of money, and uh, 
the reason is that it's getting a lot of attention now is because McKinsey was led by Dominic Martin, who had a senior role in the early years of this government as an economic advisor to the government. Well, I'll bring you in at that point then, Jude, because he, you're right, Bill. You, you talk about the dollar figure. The dollar figure aside, there's also uh, these questions being raised about the ties McKinsey has to this government. Uh, explain to us what's being said. Yeah, so a lot of the focus has actually moved to, you know, Dominic Barton and his relationship with the federal government. He was the global managing director for the firm, uh, for McKinsey, and he also, as Bill just mentioned, he uh, chaired an advisory council to former finance minister Bill uh, Morneau on economic growth. Uh, he later became the ambassador to China for Canada, and so there's been questions about what kind of influence the firm has had on public policy through Barton. Uh, part of that also stems from the fact that he's involved in, in public policy discussions. He co-founded Century Initiative, which uh, is a group that calls for uh, rapidly expanding immigration so that Canada grows to 100 million uh, by the end of the century. And so there's been questions raised about you know the recent immigration targets and whether that's been linked to McKinsey. Now, I spoke with the uh, immigration minister, Sean Fraser, who s denied that McKinsey has had any influence on on those plans, but that's kind of uh, why there's been such a focus on these federal contracts uh, and Dominic Barton. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I'm going to pick up on that because, you know, I, I think it's fair to say that these are still questions. They're not facts, they're only questions. But to listen to the conservative leader, Pierre Polyev, and this is, you know, what he was saying in the House yesterday, government friends at McKinsey, he said, are rolling in cash. That's, that's uh, almost a direct quote. What do you make of that statement then? Well, I mean, it depends on how you want to describe that uh, relationship or not. The ethics commissioner has a definition of friends. You know that sometimes, you know, sometimes liberals do cross that line with the Mary Ying question uh, contract. She gave communications contracts to a friend, according to the ethics commissioner. In the We Charity case, they were deemed friends of Bill Morneau and, uh, to a lesser extent, the Trudeau family. So there have been cases where there's been friends. Is Dominic LeBlanc, or sorry, Dominic Barton, a friend of the liberals? Well. They were friendly, they, they respected each other a lot, they were close ties, they spoke very highly of each other, they relied on him a lot. Um, you know, lots of things say, get say, said in the house that go uh, a little bit uh, bigger than what the facts might suggest. Yeah, so we're going to have to follow the story mm -hmm. to yeah. see just how close it is. But you know, it was interesting because uh, yesterday, as you know, uh, before the Government Operations Committee, there was a, a university professor from Carleton University, and she was saying uh, that she thought that there was almost too much focus being uh, given to McKinsey, and for her it was much more a bigger issue of outsourcing contracts rather than using the expertise within the civil service. Uh, what do you make of that argument and of that issue? Yeah, so she, as a researcher, her focus has been on the general reliance on these consulting firms by the public service. And so, so in her perspective, this is a larger issue than just McKinsey. Um, her uh, fellow researcher also testified in his opening remarks. He mentions that uh, actually the largest uh, recipients of these federal contracts are firms like Deloitte and Accenture and PricewaterhouseCoopers. Um, and she later mentions in her testimony that when she's spoken to public servants, they've actually uh, rarely brought up McKinsey as a firm they're concerned about, and they've raised uh, concerns about those other firms that have a larger presence in the public service. So um, she made the point that the focus on McKinsey might be a bit of a distraction, um, and, and her argument is framed around the idea that there is a real problem around the government outsourcing too many tasks uh, to these firms. Uh, and you know, she, she made the point, I believe, 
believe that government actually gets dumber when they rely on these consulting firms uh, too much because it, it hollows out the public service. Mm -hmm. what, what do you make of that argument that we heard yesterday? Yeah, so Amanda Clark at Carleton and her team have done amazing work. They, so there's a lot of really important issues that they're raising about the future of the public service and, and the risks that happen when you outsource lots of things. It's less exciting for opposition MPs to get into machinery of government and how do you improve the public service, but that's absolutely a serious issue that MPs have to deal with. Whether there's more scandalous issues to go, go along with these contracts, I mean, we'll see. The Government Operations Committee, uh, all party MPs, are doing a lot of good work on this. They're demanding documents. They're going through do documents. And they'll find out if there's more to it, but it's going to take some time. They're just starting the process of asking for McKinsey documents. They've gone through the process of ArriveCan documents, which was a similar study that, that did find some pretty interesting, questionable things that even the Prime Minister couldn't defend last week, saying uh, some of it didn't make a whole lot of sense. Mm -hmm. So, as I said, questions still yeah, need answering exactly. before they're actually facts. Yeah. Uh, but we do have tomorrow Dominic Barton, mm -hmm. as we talked about him, appearing before that committee. So, what are you going to be watching out for? I'll begin with you. Yeah, so we've actually heard from Dominic Barton uh, recently. He, he appeared on Peter Mansbridge's show where he talked about uh, this issue and he came out pretty strong against the accusations against him and McKinsey and the insinuations that there's some sort of cozy relationship. So I'll be, I'll be interested in seeing tomorrow how much of the uh, questions and the discussion focus on McKinsey versus him uh, and his relationship with the government uh, and, and what kind of uh, defense uh, he, he sets for himself and, and for the firm. And Bill, what are you going to be watching out for? Well, just the story, I'd like to hear his version of events as to why these contracts increased after he did his advisory council role, because I remember covering it at the time, in the early days of the Trudeau government. It was really unusual to have this outsider, this McKinsey head guy, sweep into the cabinet meetings. I mean, cabinet meetings are normally just for cabinet ministers, maybe the odd public servant. This guy was going in and out of the private cabinet all the time, incredible access, a very influential person, making a dollar a day at the time. Then later, the con con contracts to his company increase. Let's hear what he has to say as to why that happened. Okay. Well, the three of us certainly will be watching. Najudville, thank you so much for uh, today and the time. And the problem that we're up against will not be solved with an American-style for-profit approach to healthcare that Doug Ford and Daniel Smith are proposing. And now Prime Minister Trudeau is celebrating and supporting and calling innovation when it's only gonna make things worse. And I think it's very important for people to hear the stories of those Canadians, of those healthcare workers who are saying, we need help, and that help is not privatization. Well, that was the federal NDP leader, Jagmeet Singh, calling on the Prime Minister to do more to protect public health care. Now, over the holiday break, the Ontario government announced it would be funding more procedures at private clinics to address the backlog of surgeries in the province. And for Mr. Singh, well, he is worried about the precedent this sets when it comes to for-profit care and concerned these private clinics will take nurses and doctors away from a public system that is already struggling to meet demands. To talk about this, we're now joined by former federal health minister, Dr. Jane Philpott, who is now dean for health sciences at Queen's University, also co-author of a report released last week from the Public Policy Forum. It's called Taking Back Healthcare. Dr. Philpott, nice to see you. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So a lot to talk about here, but I do want to begin uh, with the concern being expressed by Mr. Singh. Do you have concerns uh, about provinces using public dollars to fund uh, private health care delivery? 
Well, in fact, this is one of the matters that is addressed in our report, the Public Policy Forum report, where we speak about the fact that in many ways this becomes a bit of a red herring, this conversation around private delivery of care. The reality is that an enormous amount of care is already delivered privately. For example, most family doctors across the country are private practitioners and, and run their own private corporations, but they're publicly funded. And so uh, it's important to make sure that when we're talking about private care, the concern comes in private pay. We don't want to see people uh, being able to jump the queue by paying separately outside of health insurance for medically necessary care. So unfortunately, it becomes a bit of a distraction and as part of the conversation. Mr. Singh is correct that, of course, one of the challenges is the health workforce. And so often, uh, you know, you can build extra private facilities, but if you don't have the doctors and nurses to staff them, that is, that's where the problem lies, not necessarily the fact that it's private delivery of care, but that, in fact, we have a very serious health workforce crisis. Mm -hmm. And underline the word crisis there, because, you know, you say that, and I think it's fair to say the Canadians really do take great pride in national health care. I think about the debate in the United States over Obamacare when Canada was held up as a model of what a single-payer system could uh, create and look like. But I'm wondering, is that pride now misplaced? Because here we have millions of Canadians not even having a primary care provider anymore. Well, the shortage of access to family doctors or other primary care providers is an extremely serious issue. And to your question about whether or not uh, Canadians' pride is misplaced, of course, we ought to be extremely proud of the fact that we do uh, have universal coverage of health insurance for Canadians and that they are, uh, they are by law allowed to have access to medically necessary care funded by that insurance and uh, not funded by by out-of-pocket payment. However, there are lots of things that don't fit into that system. There are lots of things like sometimes home care, mental health care, for example, uh, for which there is not uh, a publicly insured way to be able to get access to that care. And as you've mentioned, we have a big problem in the way that primary care has been designed across the country. And so that that health workforce shortage requires a real realignment of primary care and a big emphasis on making sure that Canadians do have that access. Oh, okay, let's let's go into that a bit deeper then because I, I do wonder what is needed to restore Canadian pride, uh, faith for that matter, in the public health care system. What would it actually look like in future if the current or at least the past model is not what's working anymore? Well, let me speak to what, I, what we think it could look like. And this is again, something that we talk about in the report where we advocate for the concept of every Canadian having access to a primary care health team. Uh, we believe that team-based care is a big part of the solution to the health workforce crisis, knowing that when people need access to care, it may not necessarily be a doctor they need to see. They may be able to see a nurse practitioner or a dietitian or a social worker to have their care needs met. But that just like we fund public schools for every Canadian child when they need to get access to school, every Canadian should be able to have access in their community, ideally within a half an hour's drive of home, to be able to go and see a primary care team and we believe that that is doable. Okay, doable, but you know, you noted 
yourself in the report. You know, there have been recommendations in the past. It's been a stop and start kind of a, a, a I guess, response to these requests and recommendations. What makes this time different? I, this, here is this report. Obviously, the, the healthcare system right now is in crisis. But what makes this time different that, that makes you believe that politicians and leaders may actually be listening to what you're recommending? Well, I think that the public is has uh, really been pushed beyond their point of patience. And so the report is called Taking Back Healthcare. And it speaks to the fact that this is the people's healthcare system or systems, and that people need to step up and demand and let their uh, policymakers and decision makers uh, at all orders of government be clear about what the expectations of Canadians are, uh, that we have been proud in the past, but we're very much at risk. The system is is a, in deeper crisis than it has been in our lifetimes. And it's time for people to step up and say, we expect you to get on with it, to rearrange our healthcare system so that we'll be able to get good value for the very large investments uh, that Canadians make in having that healthcare system be there for them. Now we are expecting some kind of federal provincial deal on healthcare next week. Uh, the provinces, as you know, asking for more money, the federal government uh, asking for more accountability and, and data as well. What will you be looking for in that deal? What would signal to you an understanding uh, of a way to address the crisis that we're in right now? Well, you've spoken to some of the things that people are certainly expecting. We're expecting that the federal government is likely to make further investments in healthcare, that there are likely to be some kind of conditions attached to that. Certainly the data issue is one that the report speaks to. And uh, there's a huge challenge around interoperability and access to, to data to support health systems and patient care. But I'm hoping that we're also going to see investments in the workforce. I, I'm part of Queen's University's Faculty of Health Sciences where we train nurses and doctors and we know that we need to be training more and, and other universities like our own are prepared to be able to expand our programs, but that will require investment. And of course, a real restructuring of care so that people will get access. So those millions of Canadians who don't have a family doctor um, will be able to get the care they need. It has to happen now. Dr. Jane Felpott, really appreciate the time. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, let's take a look at some of the other stories making headlines today. In Ontario, the province's only Green member of provincial parliament is thinking about crossing the floor. Mike Schreiner was approached by a number of prominent Liberals to run for that party's leadership. Schreiner is calling it a serious and unique proposal, but requires more talk with constituents and Green members. The Ontario Liberals finished a distant third in last year's provincial election. And Human Rights Watch is accusing Ukraine of firing rockets to hurl thousands of landmines into and around Izium. At the time, the eastern Ukrainian city was under Russian occupation. Human Rights Watch says, quote, Russian forces have repeatedly used anti-personnel mines and committed atrocities, but it does not justify Ukraine's use of illegal weapons. Ukraine signed the 1997 Ottawa Treaty that banned the use of landmines.
After the thousands of COVID-19 deaths at Canada's long-term care homes, new standards are calling for higher staff wages and at least four hours of direct care to residents every day. But the nonprofit Health Standards Organization says the recommendations are only useful if enforced. The Liberals promised legislation in the last campaign and also in the confidence and supply deal with the NDP. Well, today marks the first day of a three-year trial for British Columbia, a trial that will temporarily decriminalize the possession of illegal drugs. Now, it will only apply to small amounts of opioids, cocaine, methamphetamine, and MDMA, but it did require a criminal code exemption from Ottawa, and the hope is that the pilot will lead to better health outcomes and ultimately save lives. To talk about this, we're now joined by Caitlin Shane. She is a lawyer with the Pivot Legal Society in Vancouver. She leads the organization's drug policy campaign. Ms. Shane, thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Now, correct me if you disagree, but it seems for both the province and for the federal government, uh, decriminalizing possession is about destigmatizing drug use. How does that improve health outcomes? And I know that's discussed among those who are more familiar uh, with the issue, but for those who have questions about this policy direction, what would you say? I think that it is correct to say that decriminalization will help to destigmatize drug use and in turn to help remove uh, drug use from underground. So what we know is that criminalization drives drug use underground, leads people to use drugs alone and in isolation, um, and it also leads to frequent incarceration of people who possess small amounts of drugs frequent interactions with police that can be harmful with people who use drugs. And so the idea behind this policy is to reduce some of that stigma, to allow people to have legal access to supervised consumption sites and overdose prevention sites that they're currently encouraged to go to, but have no legal means to access them. If you travel from home to a site with drug in hand, technically up to this point, you've still been criminalized. So the idea behind this policy is to allow for that and to help to remove some of the harmful interactions with police from the lives of people who use drugs. And, and in doing so, re reduce some of the harms, including uh, perhaps saving lives for those who do use drugs. I think it's important not to overestimate uh, the, the outcomes of this this policy, the fact that people will no longer be criminalized for possessing small amounts of drugs doesn't mean that overnight they're going to have access to a regulated safe supply. Government has been very clear that they are not interested in legally regulating illicit drugs on a larger scale, and that's a shame because it is the illicit drugs and the criminalization behind them that leads to the numbers of overdose that we see. So really this policy is about reducing some stigma allowing people to have the legal ability to access harm reduction sites that they're encouraged to visit already, and reducing the rate of incarceration, which we see most heavily being enforced against poor and racialized communities. Okay, well, let's build on that by breaking up a bit of a couple of the points that you mentioned there. First and foremost, let's talk about the actual legal limit here, because if part of this is about reducing police interaction, the legal limit under this exemption is 2.5 grams. Does that concern you in any way that that is the limit? Absolutely, it concerns me. Uh, so importantly, it's a cumulative threshold. So it means that in total, one can possess up to 2.5 grams of certain substance. 
what is important to note is that uh, in the development of this policy, there were a number of groups of people who use drugs, legal experts, medical professionals, health authorities, all whom advocated for a much higher threshold quantity. Uh, it appears that police have been pushing very hard. They wanted a one gram threshold quantity. And so that's sort of the middle ground that we ended up with. The issue with that is that um, it, it presumes a person who uses drugs who has regular access to their dealer. If you're speaking with folks in rural and remote communities who don't have regular access to their supplier, people with mobility issues who need to purchase larger quantities at one point in time rather than more frequent engagements, people who rely on others to buy for them, for all of these groups of people, the policy won't protect them. If you have a policy that you believe is good and you think it will uh, extend benefits to people, then you should be aiming to have that policy protect as many people as possible. And the problem with the 2.5 gram threshold is that it leaves out so many people, including arguably the people who need the benefits of decriminalization most. Mm -hmm. uh, quickly writing time, but I do want to have uh, get two more questions uh, with you, if that's okay. And one has to do with an issue that you've raised, the, the idea of a safe drug supply. Uh, for people who, again, are locking into this issue and this debate right now, what would a safe drug supply look like compared to what exists right now? Right now, we have virtually no safe supply except the supply that people can access through prescriptions. That's a highly regulated, very narrow way for people to access drugs. Um, the idea behind prohibition is that you're actually relinquishing all control over illicit substances by turning a blind eye to the fact that people always have, always will, want and need to use drugs. You ignore the fact that supply will always meet that demand. And because the federal government and provincial governments have all but refused to provide any sort of legal avenue to a regulated safe supply of drugs, uh, a consistent supply, a supply that has been standardized, um, you, you make room for a very robust illicit market that is profit driven, that has no form of regulation. And that is the substance that people are accessing. And that is what is killing people. So this pilot will run for three years then. Uh, it will be reviewed thereafter. What do you hope then comes out of this? Given the limitations as you see them, uh, as you've explained them to us, what do you hope comes out of this three year uh, pilot program? I hope that we start to see benefits in terms of uh, people who use drugs who are protected by this policy, um, experiencing less stigma, being able to have more open, open conversations with their families, friends, doctors, um, less incarceration, less targeted incarceration of poor and racialized people. And I would hope that in looking at those benefits, we can move to extend the policy so that it applies to a greater range of substances and a larger number of people. Caitlin Shane, really appreciate the time tonight. Thank you for it. Thank you so much. And that is our program for tonight. I'm Michael Serapio. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for watching. We'll see you again tomorrow.